This is Brad Berkman, uh, host of The Art and Spirit, the podcast uh, produced by Greenspoon Modern. And I am an attorney here at the firm specializing in alcohol beverage law issues. And sometimes we like to dive into, well, all sorts of interesting areas other than alcohol beverage law, though we will touch on that today to a limited degree. And sometimes we like to just talk about the stuff we drink and the business itself. Right. And one of my favorite drinks, right, you know, in beer, wine and spirits is certainly wine. I love wine very much, all sorts of wine. And today we have a really special guest with us, my good friend and actually client of the firm, a former client, I should say. But, well, you know, we still consider him a client, Mr. Paul Clear. Paul is the CEO of a wine import company called Sandalo Estates. It is CEO, correct, Paul? Good morning, Brad. Yeah, that is correct. Okay, great. And we're going to talk a little bit about Paul's business. We're going to talk about the wine business in general. And we'll talk a little bit about, you know, maybe some of the regulatory and legal issues that Paul had to deal with running his business. So let's get started, Paul. Let's talk a little bit about Sandalo Estates. I know that um, it's basically a Spanish company, I do believe, if I'm correct in saying it's owned by, uh, by a larger firm called Punctum, if that's correct. So the way we're set up, um, Sandalo or Grupo Sandalo is sort of uh, the name used to encompass the many companies that we have underneath that umbrella. Underneath that umbrella, we have three wineries in Spain or three companies in Spain. One is Punctum Biodynamic Winery, the other is Bodegas Albero Winery, and the third is Terra Firma Winery. So we are producers, one of the largest producers in Europe of organic, biodynamic, and vegan wines. And then also under that umbrella are the import companies based in the US, which is Sandalo Organic Estates, of which I am the CEO, a company in Hong Kong uh, called Long Teng Bao, which I just found out very funny, also means House of the Dragon. Very interesting. And your area of principal responsibility is managing U.S. business and the importation of wine into the United States and managing your wholesale network and marketing and promoting the brands at retail and to consumer. That is correct. So, you know, Spanish wines are great. I've always loved them. In fact, I don't know if you know this, Paul, I think we must have I must have mentioned this to you at, at, at dinner once or twice that I did live in Spain, in Sevilla many, many years ago, and had the opportunity to, although I was a bit more of a novice back then, I was pretty young at the time to travel to um, some of the wine growing regions of Spain, and in fact, Portugal as well, and really sample some great stuff and fell in love with wines from that part of the world. But, you know, there seems to be this Really interesting, it's not necessarily a new phenomenon, it's been going on for the past, well, a few years or so, in organic, natural, and biodynamic wines. Can you help us understand a little bit about what the difference is between organic, biodynamic, natural wine? I know they're they're, their own distinct categories. And then maybe you can also tell us a little bit about why these wines are different from the more traditional winemaking processes. Absolutely. Uh, And let me start by saying that when I started importing organic wines way back in 2009, and I would walk into a restaurant or retailer, 80% of them had no idea what that meant. They said, what the hell is organic wine? I thought all the wine was organic. And that proved to me very early on that it was going to be an educational process and a challenge. Uh, And then as years came along, biodynamic, natural, all these things, all these terms that 
that are constantly evolving in the wine business or are quote unquote trendy uh, are things that customers are becoming more and more savvy about because as the consumer becomes more educated, they care what they're putting into their body. And so for us, we have a unique advantage that we were one of the first people, one of the first companies out there marketing organic wine. So what is organic wine? Basically, it's the growing and production of wine without the use of added synthetic chemicals, pesticides, or anything that is not quote unquote natural or organic. Now, the definition varies slightly between the United States version and the rest of the world. For some reason in the United States, we've got this idea that sulfites may be bad for us, while the rest of the world does not have that view. So we in this U.S. must label our wines made with organic grapes, where in every other country on earth, our wines are 100% organic wines. So the only difference is we had a little bit of sulfites just for self shelf stability. Uh, something like 0.001% of the population is actually allergic to sulfites. If you drink some wine and you maybe get a little red in the face or start sneezing, it's very possible that that's because of the histamines and not because of the sulfites. So that's that's organic wine. And, and how is that different than conventional wine? So conventional wines, uh, the bigger brands, you know, in general, they're farming. They can farm with up to 5,000 different chemicals um, that are used for various reasons. Some of the chemicals could be used for, for farming. Let's say that you're a large winery and you care more about quantity than quality. So if you, let's say, have shareholders and the more you sell, the more money you make, you might care more about quantity. Therefore, you can spray things to help grow more grapes and help produce more wine. When you care more about quality, you actually cut grapes off the vine to maintain better, better fruit on the vine and make better wine. So you care more about quality. So a lot of smaller wineries um, do practice organic. They, they may not be certified, but they practice organic. We are certified organic. Most of our brands are certified vegan and or biodynamic as well. So we're somewhere in the middle. Uh, we have the capacity to produce about 7.5 million cases of wine, uh, which is quite a, quite a lot. Um, we don't produce that much, but we have the capacity. So in Spain, we're a medium-sized winery, where if we were a U.S.-based winery, we'd be probably in the top 10 of uh, size-wise production. It's a significant winery, to say the least. And what is your flagship brand that you're importing here into the United States? So the flagship brand we have is, is a wine called Lobatia. Uh, it's got this mosaic-looking butterfly on the label, very beautiful. Uh, some people compare it to a uh, blind, a color blindness test uh, because of the texture of the, the, the dots on the butterfly. But uh, that is the brand that's really caught on, and it was what allowed us to really be creative and start doing some other things like very interesting wines, like pet nats and orange wines. The success of Lobatia, which is sold, by the way, in, in 40 states uh, in over 46 countries, has really allowed us to, to start playing around with some other unique and fun stuff. So um, something about the brand has really just caught on with consumers. I think the fact that it's affordable uh, in general, between you know 10 and $12 retail per bottle, it is organic certified, it is vegan certified, and the wines are just really good for the money. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. These aren't the top end best wines that you can can get. But for a $10 wine, they're very, very good. They're very drinkable. And, and critics like them a lot. Uh, they call them clean uh, and easy drinking and well-made. I'm staring at the labels now, as a matter of fact, and all the different varietals. It looks like there's quite a number of varietals that are coming in. That you're, are, you, are you importing all the varietals I'm staring at? The Sauvignon Blanc, the Chardonnay, the Rosé? We're selling in the U.S. We're importing and selling in the U.S. So everything that you have in the, the deck that I sent you. So mm -hmm. in the Lobatia brand, the best sellers are our dry rosé. 
Um, dry rosé is a is a very trendy category right now. Um, and having a $10, $12 dry rosé with a great label uh, has really helped us out in the retail segment. Tempranillo is the second best seller. And if you've ever had Rioja or Barrel de Duero from Spain, you've probably had Tempranillo. We have other things like Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, uh, Cabernet, things that, that the American consumer might be a little bit more familiar with. Let's, let's talk just a little bit about perhaps some of the issues that you've had to deal with when importing these wines into the United States and maybe some of the regulatory and compliance uh, matters that have popped up that you've had to deal with. So I'll just ask sort of a, a, I mean, a really pointed question. What has been, from your experience, the most complicated or uh, laborious process, if you will, that you had to contend with when bringing these wines into the United States? So when I started the business, let's just say I knew a little bit about wine and nothing about business. <laughs> and what most people don't realize is that the wine industry is extremely regulated, um, not just by the federal government, but by every single state and in some states by every single county. The compliance that is required and the amount of paperwork that is required to even get into this business is, is immense and incredible. So the biggest challenge that I faced was trying to wrap my head around all of those compliance issues, requirements, licensing uh, that is, is required by both the federal and state governments, you're, where you're importing to or where you're selling to or where you're importing from. It's intense and it's a lot. Every month we have 40 compliance reports that we have to do uh, for every state. And sometimes that involves paying taxes on, on those shipments. And it just means sending in a, a report that says zero if we didn't ship anything that month. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, obviously, I see that on a day-to-day -day basis with many of our clients, as, as you're well aware. Uh, you know, one of the interesting things from my perspective is taking a new uh, upstart, an entrepreneurial company, and launching uh, that company um, in this industry, hopefully educating uh, the principles of the company of all the various requirements and assisting in that process. And generally what happens over time is, and you'll probably agree with this, that someone in your position and those who work for you begin to understand the industry after spending a few years in it and come to understand issues of reporting requirements, both at the federal side and, and, and at the state side. And eventually there are certain tasks that you don't need to rely on an alcohol beverage lawyer for. You're confident enough and you can handle them on your own. As you segue into more complicated issues, such as marketing deals, as an example, or even tasting programs, which can be a bit complex at times. One of the interesting things, and we've sort of had a few issues and discussions about this, Paul, is uh, CBMA, or Craft Brewers Modernization Act, and the complexities of that. So very recently, well, just, just very briefly, the CBMA is a reduction in taxes uh, for Basically, small producers up to a certain production level, um, you can um, claim a tax credit now from uh, the federal government on, on imported products and also manufactured goods as well here in the United States. The CBMA used to be managed by U.S. Customs. And I know that you ran into a lot of problems with U.S. Customs and particularly Customs brokers who weren't really familiar with uh, the various requirements uh, with Customs uh, for reporting purposes to make sure you got your money back. I mean, at the end of the day, it added, I'm sure, significantly to, 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 your, to your margins and your bottom line, to your gross dollars. You, you wanted that tax credit. And interestingly enough, it was... a I'll spare you the history of, of the CBMA, but it is now permanent. It was initially temporary. Customs was handling it. Now, uh, TTB, or the Alcohol Tax and Trade Bureau, is administering 
the CBMA. And there is a registration process that's required. Things are a bit different in that you file quarterly now in order to uh, get the, the return. You also need to have your foreign producers uh, register on your behalf and then assign their rights under the CBMA to you. Um, how do you find that process working out? You know, anything that has to do with government always seems to present uh, a challenge. Uh, CBMA is one of those things, and as you said, uh, it was a significant benefit at the beginning uh, for smaller importers, smaller producers to be able to recoup some tax and, and duty money that we have to pay up front in general uh, to the government to be able to even import our goods. So at our level, where we're importing anywhere from five to six containers per month, uh, and for reference, that's anywhere from 1,500 to around 1,600 cases, you know, it's a significant amount of money. The initial process was, like you said, a lot of brokers didn't really understand how to do it. And we did have a broker who we paid to do the process, and they ended up making a mistake, and we lost $30,000, which is a significant amount of money, but it's, it's, it's $30,000 that should have been in our pockets instead of in the federal government's hands. So let, let, let me ask you this. Uh, this is uh, when the program was being administered by U.S. Customs. Uh, it's relatively new with TTB. I would assume that you've registered accordingly and you got the Spanish winery to assign their credits to you. Have you yet filed a return with uh, TTB? So we're in the process now. So, so yeah, like you said, you have to talk to any, any winery that you're importing, whether it be from Spain or Italy or Greece or whatever, that you want to claim credits on, uh, you have to talk to them to write a letter and basically assign you um, those credits. They also have to get online and register as a winery, uh, and we as importers also have to register. How did you find that system? If I could jump in for one second. Was it easy for you to register or was it difficult? It was pretty easy for us to, well, we've, once we figured it out, it, it wasn't so clear, but we figured it out. So we, we got it done in about a day or two. Okay. We had other issues with our permits online that we just had to clear up that something that we hadn't used in a while. So we had to clear up some email addresses. Luckily for us, you know, we're one cohesive unit. So it was pretty easy for us to do where I can see smaller, just smaller importers having challenges explaining to their wineries you know exactly what this program is and then asking these guys we're just trying to sell some wine to to go out of their way to to do something else do yet another compliance aspect so instead of just giving us a, a lower rate the government makes us claim for it uh, so an extra step so a lot of smaller importers i know uh, have asked me for advice and they've just said it's too complicated they're just not going to do it that's not worth their time which i think is crazy but i guess if you're a small guy that doesn't really make that big of a difference where for us you know, it, it's it's literally hundreds of thousands of dollars annually. Um, so we've just started to file our quarter one return. We're learning how it works. We are waiting on some information to be cleared up from our broker um, to be able to do it. So they say that once we file, we should have a refund within 90 days via treasury check. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Right, right. Well, it's a new system and everyone is testing it out. And uh, you'll have to report back to us in 90 days and let us know whether you received uh, the monies within that period of time. I think TTV is going to do a pretty good job of it, quite frankly. Um, I think it's going to be uh, certainly a much more efficient system than U.S. Customs. Look, let's face it, uh, TTB is the Alcohol Tax and Trade Bureau, right? And they're, they know their licensees and they're the permittees, and certainly you're familiar with the agency as well, having to deal with them 
somewhat somewhat frequently. I mean, you are an importer. Manufacturers tend to deal with them much more than you do. You deal with TTB generally on, on perhaps maybe what, at the time of import and uh, this instance, again, in the CBMA. So you will have more contact with them going forward, principally with re- reporting and, and the CBMA. So you're, I, I would suspect as an importer, your experience with them, though, is limited to maybe adjustments to permits and submission of colas and uh, I'm looking through your portfolio. I don't really see anything that requires any sort of formula approval here. Uh, we have our vermouth uh, and oh, our yeah. which which both need formula approvals. Right. I didn't see it on the uh, on the uh, deck. Okay. Uh, how, how do you find? Uh, go. Let's talk a little bit about TTB in general, though, as a, as a partner. They, they really are right to a very large degree. You have to interact with them often. How do you find dealing with them when you now? When I say dealing with them, you probably deal principally with uh, you interface with your computer and their portals. So, Colas Online is an example. Do you find that to be a user friendly atmosphere for someone now who has experience uh, working with it? Originally doing the COLAs in 2009, where I believe even at that time, you may have had to mail them in. And, and it took five to eight weeks for approval. Uh, and the back and forth for any mistakes was, it was so laborious. The, the process has become so seamless now. I mean, COLAs are approved in a day or two. It's, it's really fantastic. I have to say, as a government agency goes, TTB is really, really a pleasure to deal with. And they call you back within a day. They're very friendly people. It's usually a group of five or six people that you talk to with with certain sort of issues, whether it be COLAs online, permits online. Um, As government agencies go, in my experience, TTB has been one of the best. And I think you're going to find that going forward with them as well as it relates to CBMA and the administration of that. I mean, there's going to be kinks in the system. There's just no escaping that. But as far as regulatory agencies go within our industry, um, they are extremely efficient, extremely knowledgeable, truly experts in their fields, their various fields. And uh, we try and stay on their good side, of course. Um, you know, some of the things that I deal with, just so you know, with, with TTB is, well, investigations and audits and uh, tight house issues and compliance concerns, things that raise s- someone in your position in a, as an example. And clearly, I know that you are a an honest actor within our industry. But you know, sometimes you sometimes suppliers cross over the line and perhaps engage in some sort of promotional activity or some sort of relationship with a retailer that exposes them to some sort of regulatory scrutiny by a, uh, an agency. That could be the federal um, the, the TTB, or it could be any state agency for that matter. Upper tier industry members such as yourself and manufacturers, we have to keep a close eye more, I think, on the federal government and on TTB and make sure we're in full compliance with, with federal issues. And I know that you pay attention to that and we've had discussions and and uh, we've offered some 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 guidance on those topics and, and uh, on those matters. So yeah, it's as Paul said, it's this is a highly regulated industry with many different compliance and regulatory concerns. And then, of course, Paul also operates within a very interesting business environment, uh, let alone a regulatory environment. Paul does business in 40 states, as he mentioned. How many wholesalers are, are you um, doing business with? We deal with about 45, 46 wholesalers between the 40 states we do business in. And um, we're dealing with a wine item. So it's it's an interesting discussion about uh the relationship between supplier, brand owner, and distributor, and some of the elements of contract 
that uh, have to be hashed out and discussed and memorialized in, in agreements. Distributors are kind of fickle. Some want contracts with their suppliers, others don't. Interestingly enough, there are certain states that are franchise states and there are other states that are not franchise states, depending upon the commodity, right? Um, you know, in some states, franchise applies to beer and wine, well, beer specifically, virtually almost everywhere. And we'll, that'll be a topic of conversation at some other time and some other podcast. Some states do have similar laws that apply to, to beer and wine, but not as strict. Do you, do, do you sell through any beer wholesalers just out of curiosity or are you strictly dealing with wine houses? So something I learned many, many years ago in the business is that you want to sell to anyone who can pay the bill and sell your wine. So at the beginning, I was, I had to learn to talk to different types of people that I didn't really know could sell wine, like beer wholesalers. Uh, so yes, we do have a handful of beer wholesalers that we sell to in places like South Jersey, upstate New York, where the larger distributors just wouldn't give us the focus we need for our brands. Where these beer distributors not only have a team of, of beer guys out, you know, pushing their Bud Lights or their craft local beers or whatever, but they also have dedicated wine teams, um, which is very interesting. So a lot of these beer companies have have seen the value uh, and profit, quite frankly, in craft beer, which started out sort of sort of mimicking wine, you know, doing beer dinners, finding different, talking about flavor profiles, um, and so I think that a lot of these beer distributors saw the value in that and said, well, it just makes sense to start selling wine. So we do have really good relationships with some beer distributors, but, you know, also in some states like Pennsylvania, Utah, Mississippi, you know, we're selling directly to the government, directly right. to the state. Which is what, are you, what are those states known as, Paul? Those are monopoly states. Well, control states, right? So, yeah. And they're, they're a different animal altogether. That, that, that'll be another topic for another podcast. Although I did learn something very interesting. You may or may, may not know this. Do you know that there's one um, state that actually allows municipalities or cities to own liquor stores? Did you know that? I mean, I know in North Carolina that every county right. has their own ABC board. And I know right. in America that certain counties have an ABC board. Right. But as far as cities owning liquor stores, no, I do not know uh, what yeah. that is. Right. It's in Minnesota. And I only learned this recently. It's super interesting in that um, in municipalities with less than with a population of less than 10,000 people, the municipality can actually own its own liquor store and manage and run its own liquor store. It's pretty interesting. Uh, again, one more, you know, state actor, uh, you know, involved uh, in the industry. Um, but I was trying to get to a question about beer wholesalers. With any of these beer distributors, um, do you have written agreements with them or uh, are we talking about handshake deals at this point? I'm kind of curious. So my my experience in the wine business, it's a, it's a very personable business. It's, it's a business about people um, and it's a business about handshakes. Now that has gotten me in trouble in the past where some of these people I trusted sort of have run away with my money and never to be seen again. Um, I vaguely recall an instance to that effect. <laughs> yeah. So, so for my part, uh, we take steps to, to mitigate those risks, which is get credit insurance, which by the way is very expensive, but worth it. Every distributor that we deal with. Now in franchise states, yes, we do a uh, place like Virginia. We do contracts. We do uh, brand assignments you know, for certain counties or whatever, to protect ourselves, you know, for instance, because in a franchise state, it's so hard to pull a brand away. Yeah, I was curious to know if you've ever had a, a, an issue where you tried to depart or terminate a relationship with a beer wholesaler and they tried to use beer franchise law uh, to protect their uh, interest in your brand. Has that ever happened or have you not experienced that yet? We've not experienced that with a beer wholesaler. We have experienced it with a wine wholesaler in a franchise state. 
And how did that work out, just out of curiosity? It's not great because, you know, this, the state is on their local businesses side, which is the, the wholesaler. So even if that wholesaler hasn't bought anything in a year or, or whatever the challenge may be, the law seems to be want to want to be on their side or the state seems to want to be on their side. So essentially in a franchise state, you're owned by the distributor. So pulling is very hard. So my recommendation is definitely have a contract which says, you know, minimum sales goals or or some sort of out where if something is not going right, you don't have to even go through the state to get this done. It's it's on paper. So let's say you haven't grown 10% year over year, you know, for the past three years per contract, we can pull out immediately. Although you may be more familiar, um, I guess if we we're selling wine to a beer distributor, the franchise rules don't apply if it's not a franchise state. Well, that's not necessarily the case. Um, and that was kind of curious. That was why I asked that pointed question. Certainly beer wholesalers will try and enforce those provisions and they will incorporate them into agreements, uh, regardless of the commodity type. I, I, in, in my experience, the issue of enforceability is for another discussion. It's a very interesting phenomenon and it can cause significant problems. And going back to something, just one little point that you brought up about, uh, you know, 10% year over year, what we talk about is material provisions and agreements, right? So this would be considered material provision and breaching this material provision could be grounds for terminating an agreement. But focusing again on franchises, there are all sorts of notice requirements and uh, opportunities to cure that have to be brought into uh, your discussions with your distributors and to be certain your compliance with the law. It's a very complicated and difficult process. So I suppose, I guess, you know, where we should land this is by simply saying that before going into a market, it's very important to take a look at the uh, regulations within each state, regardless of the commodity, right? I think, you know, it doesn't necessarily just have to be beer, but certainly wine and spirits as well, and and come to understand um, what kind of uh, requirements are, are placed on the uh, brand owners and manufacturers and what kind of rights the distributor has in the context of the beverage in those states. And a thorough analysis is probably useful prior to entering a market. Well, Paul, we like to keep our uh, podcasts to about 30 minutes or so. And I think we've been speaking for almost that long. You and I, I think, go on and on about this industry for lots of reasons. Uh, I know that we both really just enjoy it um, across the board, uh, you know, from the product itself to the business environment, to the regulatory landscape and, and to the legal landscape. And, you know, I'll just, I'm going to turn to you for one second. If you have any parting words that you'd like to, to put out there, um, go ahead. Yeah, no, I just want to say, um, you know, the wine business is is extremely interesting. It's a lot of fun. There's a lot worse things to be doing in life. Yes, there are challenges, but that's any business. Um, and, you know, anytime that I've had issues, uh, you, Brad, and, and the firm have, have really done a tremendous job of open communication, being honest with, with expectations. Um, and anytime I can, I recommend you guys to anyone asking, as you know, and I really appreciate all you've done for us. Well, thanks, Paul. I appreciate you saying that. That really means a lot. And I think we, we started off as a client-lawyer relationship, and now we're, we're friends. And uh, somehow I've evolved into a podcast host, and you're a podcast guest, and I appreciate you being here. Thank you for being part of the Ardent Spirit. And those who are listening, thank you for joining us. And uh, I like to end each show with uh, a cheers in, in, in some unusual language. Today, I'm going to stick with Prost. And thank you again for joining us.